You are listening to Sheep Might Fly, a podcast of serialised fiction written and read by Tansy Rayner Roberts. Our current serial is Curse of Bronze. Chapter 4 The Widow in Waiting. Mrs. Macabre, freelance agent for the Ministry of Cold Blooded Crimes, was to be found at the Hotel Bathory between tea time and cocktail hour. By the time Bella arrived at the infamous hotel, it was closer to the latter. If you had not been informed otherwise, you might assume that Mrs. Macabre was a vampire. She was what Bella's sister Faith called so very the mode. Dark hair, porcelain pale skin, and wine-dark lips. Fashionably timeless. Bella smiled her best meeting people smile and tried not to look too closely into the contents of Mrs. Macabre's cup. She had heard, of course, of widows in waiting, the brides of vampires who lived in a liminal space between human and undead. Mrs. Macabre's husband had reportedly been staked through the heart many years ago, leaving her the gift of his immortality and a taste for all things crimson. Were he to be re-blooded and return to the life of a vampire, his wife's own heart would start to beat again. Did she drink the blood of innocence? Bella had no idea, but she felt distinctly frumpy as she sat in her own sensible attire opposite Mrs. Macabre's glamorous elegance. They made a few introductory remarks, mostly about the weather and their tea preferences. Miss Hathaway, said Mrs. Macabre finally, tilting her head to one side. I had a great respect for your aunt's work. So sorry to hear of her demise. Thank you, said Bella. Everyone's been so kind. Are you a curse breaker yourself? I believe your family tend to fall into that particular line of work. Actually, none of my generation have at all. My sisters have taken up adventurous work, it's true to say, though they both steer clear of cursed items and tombs. I'm only a translator. Nothing only about being a translator. It is a vital and underestimated profession. To have another language is to possess a second soul. Mrs. Macabre raised a perfect eyebrow. You'll want to see the book, I suppose. The Grotesque Glossary. That's why you're here. Bella did not even try to disguise her enthusiasm. I'd love to. Mrs. Macabre regarded her for a long moment, considering... She then rose to her feet with an alarming smoothness. Follow me. The widow in waiting, not the same thing as a vampire, not at all, don't be scared, little girl, come on in, led Bella up a glorious gilded staircase to a suite of rooms with heavy curtains. I stay here when I am in town. My husband's estate is rather gloomy when one lives alone. 
I could lend you some talking furniture if you need the company, Bella said without thinking. Mrs. Macabre laughed, a chilling sound. Thank you. I've spent my share of time around cursed objects. Not a fan. She drew what looked like a jewellery box from a drawer in an antique bureau and laid it on her mahogany coffee table. And here you have the Quinfield Bible, also known as the Grotesque Glossary, one of the greatest academic hoaxes of the last century. Bella let out a heavy sigh as she knelt before it, not quite daring to touch. The book was bound in brown leather, with brass fixtures and decorations, much smaller than she'd expected, more the size of a pocket volume of poetry than of a mysterious forgotten language. May I open it? You're here to look, aren't you? Mrs. Macabre dared her with an arch expression. Slowly, Bella opened the heavy cover and stared at a page full of hieroglyphics that were entirely unfamiliar. They had a rounded style to them, twisted and strange, like every symbol was a creature laughing at her. Instead of rows up, down or along the pages, they were presented in dizzying spirals. A hoax, you said. That might explain why she'd heard so little about it during her linguistic studies. Oh my, yes, said Mrs. Macabre. The book was donated to the Eldritch Library about a hundred years ago by the children of the late Lord Quinfield, who claimed that their elderly father had written the entire book in a fugue state after a disturbing dream. According to his youngest daughter, the pen in Quinfield's hand had written out the whole thing without his having any say in the matter. She smiled with what she probably thought was a reassuring smile. Quinfield and the book caused a brief flurry of academic interest and were promptly forgotten. To this day you have to dig deeply to find anyone who even knows that the Quinfield Bible exists. I was wondering why I'd never heard of it, Bella admitted. Occasionally over the decades... Some academic or horoscopist will pull the book out of mothballs and scribble a paper or two. But those papers rarely end up getting published because of the copying problem. Copying problem? Mrs. Macabre turned and produced a piece of blotting paper and a fountain pen from a nearby desk. Try for yourself. Replicate any of the hieroglyphs. Bella laid out the paper beside the tiny book and began to imitate the clumsy, rounded brush strokes as smoothly as she could. It did not work. The new ink slid from the paper. The letters smeared almost as soon as she'd drawn them. As she stared at the mess she had made, the ink began to fade. It isn't a trick, said Mrs. Macabre, You'll forgive me if I don't produce a selection of 
different papers and pens for you to test right this moment. Suffice to say, no one has ever managed to copy even one of these glyphs onto any surface. Photographs don't work either. It's rather hard for academics to write about an unknown language when you can't include examples. I see that would be a problem, said Bella, setting the pen down. Whether it came from a dream or was the invention of Quinfield and his family, it was clearly a magical language. Languages all had their peculiarities, but she'd never come across one that made things quite so difficult. Mrs. Macabre continued, The most serious work on the subject was a set of live lectures 40 years ago by the philosopher Carmilla Bernardi. She posited the theory that this was the lost language of the gargoyles from an age when demonic creatures of stone and metal walked among humans. Grotesques, I should say, a far more inclusive term. She's the one who named the book the Grotesque Glossary. Bernardi's belief was that the language could not be replicated or, hu or spoken by humans or any living creatures because it was not for us. The symbols represent the different faces of grotesque tra tradition and the language belongs entirely to the world of the inanimate and the fleshless. Fascinating theory, murmured Bella. And, of course, impossible to prove. But then, a quarter of a century ago, two young and rather ambitious archaeologists claimed that the final page, see for yourself, it's all dots and lines, not the same language at all, was a map. They cobbled together an archaeology team, packed with open-minded linguists and university students, raised funding from several museums, and set out to Apollonia to find demonic treasure. You're making me nostalgic for my own university days, said Bella with a smile. She turned to the last page and, well, yes, not the same symbols at all. She could see how, once you made the logical leap that this was a map, the various dots and squiggles could possibly show directions to a coastline and a mountain and a constellation. Did they find anything? They found the brass tomb of the nameless pharaoh, said Mrs. Macabre, gently as if she was breaking bad news. A fantastic hoard of treasures reshaping the world's understanding of grotesque and gargoyle art. Most of it cast in bronze and brass, like the tomb itself, proving that the people of Dark Age Apollonia had more sophisticated metallurgy skills than previously imagined. Bella blinked. So the book wasn't a hoax after all. Who can say? It was all a long time ago. One of the hopes of the expedition was that they would find independent corroboration of the grotesque language. As it turned out, there was not a single hieroglyph found anywhere on the site of the tomb. 
the grotesque glossary was vindicated and disproved. Many scholars suggest that finding the tomb was a massive coincidence, nothing to do with the map. Others, well, you know what academics are like. There's always an alternative theory. Mrs. McCarb stood, moving away. Bella hadn't realised how close they'd been sitting together until the other woman's chilly presence was removed. If you wish to research it further, you'll want the papers of Professor Tunbridge. Tunbridge, Bella repeated. That sounded familiar. Professor Nellie Tunbridge, the first linguist to set foot inside that tomb. You could ask your... Oh, I'm so sorry. I meant to say you could ask your aunt about her. I quite forgot for a moment. Bella nodded, though she suspected Mrs. McCarb had never forgotten a detail like that in her life. I keep forgetting she's dead, too. Your aunt was not exactly fond of Professor Tunbridge and vice versa, bad blood all round, and, well, you don't need to hear about that. Mrs. McCarb gave a distant smile. Bella turned a few more pages, back from the odd map that was not a map, to consider the text. The hieroglyphics were complex and interesting. She could see why scholars were so keen to associate them with gargoyles. Nearly every glyph looked like it belonged on the cornice of an ancient building. Why do you have this here? she said, asking the question almost as soon as it came to mind. The Red Reading Room doesn't lend out books. You must have got special permission. Why bother if it's a hoax? Dangerous thing, hoaxes, said Mrs. McCarb, perfectly neutral. People have died for less. Bella flipped a few more pages. There aren't more than 40 different glyphs here. The same ones are repeated over and over. Not enough for a proper pictorial language. Perhaps gargoyles do not have a great deal to say. So you do think this is their language? No one has ever proved it. But you're right about the glyphs. That's why Bernardi's grotesque glossary title stuck. If this is a true language, then this is a first-year primer at best. The minimal basics. A tool to teach it to beginners. And what's the point of teaching a fragment of an unverified dead language that appears nowhere else in the world? Aunt Charlotte wanted to read this book, Bella said quietly, still turning pages. She could almost see a pattern in the pictographs, but it would require more study. She turned another page and found a scrap of paper someone had shoved in for a bookmark. Did she wish to learn the language of the gargoyles? Mrs. McCarb met her gaze. I have no idea. Bella pulled the makeshift bookmark out of the glossary. It was mostly covered in ink smears, as if torn from a page where someone had been attempting to copy the glyphs. 
When she turned it over, she found a line in a distinct hand that she recognised from so many years of exchanging letters with her aunt. The twenty-ninth gargoyle is our last hope. Try again, Bella said, her voice shaking a little. Mrs. Macabre did not look at all perturbed at being caught out in a lie. I believe you have a background in magical languages. Do you speak sanguinary by any chance? I have studied it closely, said Bella, balling up the tension inside her. This was important. I haven't spoken it in conversation for years. Sanguinary, the oldest of the vampire languages. So much of the greatest poetry in Artemisian history was written in sanguinary and in blood. Just as the written language of Lupine shifted its meanings as the full moon approached, sanguinary had its own peculiarities. It was impossible to write or speak an untruth in that language. Ask your questions. Mrs. Macabre said, switching to sanguinary. Her pronunciation was softer, and she had a slight hissing accent. It was all quite ominous. Bella thought for a moment, arranging in her head what she knew of the language, along with what she needed to know. Did my aunt read this book? she asked. She did so in my presence. Mrs. Macabre indicated the note. Why was she so interested in gargoyles? I did not ask. Did she locate what she was looking for? She always asked to come again. It was a regular appointment. I was expecting her next Thursday. I shall miss her company. Do you know who killed her? I do not. Bella struggled a little to find the vocabulary for what she wanted to ask. Luckily, sanguinary was a popular language for vintage murder mysteries, as well as poetry. Whom should I suspect? Everyone you meet. That's not a very specific piece of advice. You do not employ me. The language was melodic, hypnotic. Bella could listen to Mrs. Macabre speak it all day. All the more reason to wind up this extremely confusing interview. If I find out why my aunt needed to consult this book, will you let me peruse it again? Certainly, said Mrs. Macabre, the sanguinary rolling gorgeously off her tongue. I'd rather like to know that myself. She switched back to standard, her smile becoming more formal and dismissive. The Ministry of Cold-Blooded Crimes is always interested when people wish to read the grotesque glossary. I suspect they'll be very interested in you. Bella's mind was reeling as she left the Hotel Bathory, sharing the elevator with two minotaurs, 
dressed beautifully for the theatre. Why on earth were her aunt's last days so consumed with the study of gargoyles? As is usual when one has spent time talking about gargoyles, Bella found her gaze drifting upwards as she walked, noticing quite how many demented and monstrous creatures lurked on the corners of the oldest buildings. All in stone, of course. There were brass gargoyles and other grotesques in bronze or steel on door fittings along the street. In a city of undead and inhuman creatures, why would a curse-breaker like Aunt Charlotte take such interest in a language of the inanimate and fleshless creatures of legend? Presumably because she wished to speak to gargoyles, as Bella had spoken tonight to a widow-in-waiting in the language of the vampires. Did that mean gargoyles had been living creatures? That demons of metal and stone might walk the earth again? Or still? Bella was so consumed with her thoughts that she did not pay attention to the heavy tread and whispers behind her until it was too late. Rough hands seized her and something dark fell over her face. Thanks for listening to Sheep Might Fly. This podcast was recorded on Palawar land. I acknowledge and pay respect to the Tasmanian Aboriginal people as the traditional and continuing custodians of Lutruwita, Tasmania. Sheep Might Fly is produced and edited by Andrew Finch. You can sign up to my author newsletter for updates. Follow me on Instagram, Blue Sky or Threads at TansyRR. And if you like this podcast, consider supporting me at Patreon, where you can receive all kinds of bonus rewards, early ebooks, and exclusive stories for a small monthly pledge. Uh, I've recently started a Patreon serial for people at the $3 pledge level or above uh, for the new Teacup Magic book. Uh, I also now have a Patreon store on my, my page where you can download uh, stories old bonus material that was originally exclusive to Patreon people, uh, all sorts of interesting bits and pieces. So I will see you next week for the next chapter of Curse of Bronze.